Today on Pediatrics Now, we're talking about futility and moral distress in pediatrics. Dr. Caroline Jones is an assistant professor in the Division of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine at UT Health San Antonio. She's the medical director of the PICU and vice chair of the UH Ethics Committee. Today, I'm bringing you grand rounds, and this is eligible for ethics credit. Let's listen in. Good morning. Thank you for that introduction. I've been happy to be back at UT, and I, I appreciate this opportunity. When Dr. Kamat approached me about doing a topic in ethics, I immediately thought of this one because we've had several cases recently involving conflict with families about treatment options and um, end-of-life care. And one of the notable features of these cases is how much moral distress it causes they cause for the healthcare team. So in this presentation, I'll talk some about the history of futility and some of the, the factors that have led to increased conflict recently. We'll talk about some of the limitations with the term and, and why some ethicists and some professional societies have recommended a very narrow definition of futility. And then we'll move into some of the things that we can do to hopefully avoid conflicts and then things we can do to stay sane when conflicts inevitably do occur. So I have no disclosures and these are my objectives. And I'll start with the case and I wanna be clear, it's not a case from this institution. This was presented at a um, conference in Seattle and then later published. So JG was prenatally diagnosed with severe craniofacial and neurologic abnormalities. The family was given the option early in the pregnancy to terminate, but the parents declined that option. And mom presented at about 26 weeks in preterm labor. At that time, the NICU was consulted and they did a, um, they did a consult and, and gave the option of comfort care in the delivery room but the family declined that as well. And they um, always stated that their primary goal was for JG to survive as long as possible. They wanted to take him home, even if he had severe um, deficits. So he was delivered at 26 weeks. He weighed 940 grams. He required intubation in the delivery room and was found to have profound microcephaly as well as severe facial malformations. And it's hard to tell in this picture because of the endotracheal tube, but he had um, ocular uh, unilateral microphthalmia. Um, he had just nasal remnants that were widely spaced and no nasopharynx. And his maxilla was vertical in orientation um, and it was attached to his tongue. So he had complete upper airway obstruction. His brain MRI showed lobar holoprosencephaly and neurology consultants were consulted and they predicted that he would have severe um, and profound disability, cognitive disability. He actually stabilized on the vent, tolerated beads, <coughs> excuse me, but <coughs> was unable to extubate, <coughs> excuse me, um, because of his severe airway malformations. He also developed worsening hydrocephalus. So the treatment team considered two primary options. The first one was comfort care. They could give him more time and see if the family would decide to pursue comfort care, or they could offer procedures like a trach, a G-tube, or a BP and a BP shunt um, that could potentially prolong his life. And as soon as the um, procedures were mentioned, the, the neonatologist who was presenting this case <clears throat> mentioned that 
<clears throat> the the um, temperature in the NICU just rose exponentially. Um, she and her partners couldn't walk down the hallway or get in the elevator without somebody commenting on this case. And staff members made comments about futility, um, that this is unnatural, that the baby doesn't have a soul. And so the level of moral distress was, was out the roof. Um, they did multiple, multiple um, family conferences. They consulted palliative care, they consulted ethics, and ultimately they decided to offer the procedures. The, the parents were always steadfast that their goal was to take him home. So he underwent a trachea G-tube and a VP shunt and actually did very well with the procedures. He stayed in the hospital for quite a while because of trying to set up home health. And since then, this picture is um, at four years of age. He's had the typical readmissions for tracheitis and VP shunt revisions um, that we see in all of our, our technology dependent kids. Um, and he is severely cognitively delayed. Um, he does do more than was initially predicted. He, he coos and he smiles <clears throat> and the parents are very, very happy with him. He's very much a part of their family. So I chose this case because it didn't happen here, um, but it's a good example of the level of moral distress that the team can feel when parents insist on doing everything when the healthcare team feels it may not be the right thing to do. So the concept of futility is, is not new. It actually dates back to ancient medicine. Um, Hippocrates advised his students to um, avoid treating those who are overmastered by their disease and realizing that in such cases, medicine is powerless. Even though it's an ancient concept, there really wasn't a lot of interest in futility until recently. I did a Medline search of um, using the, the keywords futility and ethics, and before 1985, there were no articles on futility. Um, and then in the 1990s, we saw a, a big spike in interest, and that has been sustained since then. And this increase in, increase in interest really paralleled changes in medicine itself, as well as changes in society in general. And a huge stimulus for this in interest in futility is the remarkable advances in medicine in the last 50 to 60 years. Robert Fine put it eloquently when um, he said, it has been said that we practice medicine in an age of miracles and wonders. And that is certainly true. We see that played out every day here at UT Health. Um, for almost any life-threatening condition now, we, we have a medical intervention that can delay the moment of death. Um, so death was once a matter of fate, but now um, it's a matter of choice. We can choose when we die and how we die. And that's evident in the way that people die, including pediatric patients. Approximately 45,000 pediatric patients die each year in the US, U.S., and most of those deaths occur in ICUs after a decision to either withdraw or withhold life-sustaining technologies. So this ability to support physiology and prolonged life led to questions about how to use technology, whether we're obligated to use it because it exists, and under what circumstances it can be refused, whether by parents um, or by physicians. So the questions about futility um, played out in the uh, early 1990s really cases started in the 1970s and prior to the 1990s um, 
we have the right to die movement in which parents, folk or families um, wanted to withdraw treatment, but physicians were unwilling to stop treatment. After the 1990s, and in those cases, it, it wasn't necessarily that um, physicians believed that treatment was the right thing to do, but there was no legal precedent to um, allow them to withdraw treatment. So famous cases like Karen Ann Quinlan and Nancy Cruzan established the right for um, patients or a surrogate decision maker to refuse treatment. So after the 1990s, we saw the opposite problem in the futility movement. Um, and in, in nowadays, patients and families insist on treating um, on continuing treatment when physicians feel that it should be stopped. So why why uh, the shift um, towards parents insisting and families insisting on continuing treatment? I think one of the factors, one of the important factors is the shift from paternalism to shared decision making. Um, and I'm not criticizing shared decision making. It ha certainly has merits. But in the past, when physicians felt that a treatment would not be beneficial, they just didn't offer it. And families didn't have access to all the medical information that they have access to today. So they didn't know to question it and there was no conflict. Um, but the shift towards emphasis on shared decision making and the right for individuals to make decisions for themselves um, came about as a result of some of the egregious human rights violations in research. And those led to doctrines that emphasized the right for patients to make or for people research subjects to make the decisions for themselves and some of those examples would be the the nazi experiments um, the tuskegee experiments willowbrook and so those resulted in doctrines that really emphasized self-determination and those doctrines that applied to research then were translated into the clinical setting. And they resulted in what we now know as the, the four basic principles of medical ethics. And you can't escape an ethics lecture without hearing about these principles. Um, so beneficence, autonomy, non-maleficence, and justice. In adult medicine, the emphasis is really on autonomy. Um, we allow competent adults to make dumb decisions for themselves. In pediatrics, that's not the case because most pediatric patients don't have the capacity to make decisions. So the guiding principle in pediatrics is more beneficence, like we, we want to um, benefit the patients. So other factors that led to increased conflict related to futility um, include, and I already alluded to this, the availability of medical information to the general public. Um, at the, you know, at a button, families have access to a host of medical information. Some of it's correct, some of it's incorrect. Um, and, you know, that's in a way that's a good thing, but then they don't have the background information to interpret that, um, that data. So it can lead to conflicts. And as we all know, it can be very difficult to convince families that what they read on the internet is not actually accurate or applies to, to their case. Another issue is the consumer model of healthcare, um, and this arose when we started to link reimbursement to patient satisfaction. Um, we uh, started to see patients not just as people who were sick and needed to get better, but as customers who needed to be satisfied. And ideally, we would have healthy patients who are also satisfied, and that's what we strive for every day. 
but studies have showed that higher patient satisfaction is actually linked to higher mortality and greater cost. And then finally, an, another factor is um, kind of the, the propagation of hope. We've all had families who are just holding out for that miracle, and maybe they were in a Facebook group that um, mentioned a, a child who had the same problem and defied all of the predictions. And then we also, as a healthcare industry, perpetuate this, this um, idea of hope. We look at some of the major slogans for um, for children's hospitals. We can see how families would latch on to this hope for a miracle. All right, so we see that we've talked about some of the reasons for increased conflict. So, what have we tried in the past to approach these conflicts, and have any of those efforts actually worked? The first thing that we tried to do was actually agree on a definition. If we could define futility, then hopefully we could identify it when we see it and, and deal with it. Um, then another effort was to figure out who has the authority to make decisions. And we'll also talk about procedural approaches to managing futility cases. So the first effort, the, the attempts to define futility. Um, so futility is defined as um, in Webster's as the failure to achieve a goal or ineffectiveness or uselessness. The goal in medical care is to benefit a patient. So um, futile treatment is one that's unlikely to benefit the patient. That seems simple, right? But this is an ethics talk, so of course it's not simple. Um, we uh, have to question what do we mean by benefit? Is benefit just survival? Is it return to prior level of functioning? Is it discharge from the hospital? Um, so we immediately ran into a problem when we tried to define futility. And physicians like data and numbers. So the next step in defining futility really focused on trying to assign, assign a value to it. So quantitatively, what chance of success justifies an intervention? Um, and there was no, no consensus about a cutoff. One of the early articles in, on futility proposed that if a treatment failed in the last 100 cases or 100 attempts, then we could label it as futile. Others have suggested 5% or 7%. Um, and these authors of, of these papers reckon, you know, acknowledge that these cutoffs are a little bit arbitrary. But even if we um, could predict outcomes, act, or even if we could decide on a, a cut off, then one of the problems is that we're not all that great at predicting outcomes. In a study, physicians predicted um, predictions of imminent death carried an error rate of 8%. And in a NICU study that surveyed um, physicians, bedside nurses, nurse practitioners about um, whether they thought a particular infant would survive to discharge. Um, the results showed that one in four infants that unanimously were predicted to die in the NICU actually survived to discharge. And there's a concern that once we label an intervention as futile, that that then, then becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if um, Back in the day, we said that 24 weekers um, had a horrible prognosis. And so um, saying that we were less likely to do things and by not doing things in the prognosis, but you know, it's a self-perpetuating, a cyclic arc 
argument. And it's important to recognize that one generation's fetal treatment may actually become the next generation's standard of care. So when we couldn't assign a number to futility, then we moved on to looking at a qualitative approach. So what quality of benefit justifies an action? Um, one article suggested, and actually several have suggested, that treatment is futile if it merely preserves permanent unconsciousness or it fails to end a patient's total dependence on intensive care. Um, when we talk about the quality of an outcome, though, that's involving values rather than facts. And we have to recognize that our values may not align with the values of our patients or our families. Um, clinicians tend to place a lot of value on cognitive function. Um, and it's hard for us to imagine a life without being able to think and interact with the environment. And um, there have been several studies that surveyed physicians and parents of patients of kids who have severe disabilities. And the parents consistently rank quality of life higher. So it's important to recognize that our values may not be the same as our fam family's values. And this cartoon demonstrates the dilemma. Um, good Lord Gilroy, it's not for us to determine where the, whether they're worth saving. Ultimately, we say that families have the authority um, to decide what quality is worth an effort. So in 2015, um, five major critical care organizations published a consensus statement on the definition of futility. And the statement acknowledged the challenge of, of balancing objective data and value-based considerations. And it proposed that the term futility should only be used in inter for interventions that can't achieve a physiologic goal. So it's a very narrow definition. And they advocated the, the term potentially inappropriate. Um, for treatments that have a chance of accomplishing um, the goal that the patient or the family sets, but that clinicians think there are ethical justifications not to offer it. So the next step was to, to try to figure out who has the authority to make the decision. Um, in, as I mentioned, in adult medicine, the focus is on autonomy. Um, so we allow adults to make decisions for themselves, and we hope that if they're not in a situation they can do that, that they, they're surrogate decision makers that know what they would have wanted. But that's not the case in pediatrics. So the focus is really on the best interest of, of the patient, and that involves a balance of, of um thinking about a balance of burdens and benefits. And some of the burdens of a treatment may be pain, um, anxiety, those kinds of things. And whether a, patient, a potential outcome is worth the burden is actually a subjective assessment. So in pediatrics, we assume that parents are in the best position to make decisions for their children. Um, most parents care about their decision, their, their children. Um, and that's the case unless we have have evidence otherwise. Um, better situated to account for all of the factors that contribute to well-being. Health is only one of those factors. And um, parents actually have to live with the consequences of a decision. So the AAP recommends granting parents wide discretion to make decisions regarding um, life-sustaining treatment for their children. And their parent, the parent's opinion should really over 
be overridden only in situations when the decision clearly undermines the child's best interest. So does that mean that we always should acquiesce to what parents request? And, and the answer is no. Um, we have to remember that healthcare workers are actually moral agents. We're, we have advanced training and we're dedicated to helping our patients. We're not just cogs in the wheel of an industry designed to make families and patients happy or to meet their demands. And then children have a right to mercy, um, to be spared pain and anxiety that aren't working towards a, an actual goal. So, um, and then sometimes parents are, are wrong. Um, a, a neonatologist and ethicist who, who commented on ethics and neonatology commented that even good and caring parents acting out of fear, ignorance, or misreading of the clinical situation can make decisions that are antithetical to the best interest of the child. So the next step um, in trying to address futility concerns um, is a procedural approach. So when um, we're not able to define it and we're not convinced that the decision makers are making the right decision, then some hospitals have developed policies to outline steps um, that a team can follow to, um, to resolve disputes. And then there are also state laws. Um, the, the primary one is actually here in Texas, and it's the, the Texas Advanced Directive Act that was enacted in 1999. Um, hospital policies and ethics consultations are, are just recommendations. They don't carry any legal weight, but the Texas Advanced Directives Act actually gives physicians immunity if they follow these steps appropriately. And we'll go through those briefly. So the Texas Advanced Directors Directives Act established an extrajudicial process for resolving disputes about end-of-life care. Um, it basically authorized the Hospital Ethics Committee to function as a court um, in reviewing families' requests for treatment that a medical staff considers to be futile. Um, and it does offer legal immunity for physicians and hospitals if they follow these steps. So of note, late breaking news, um, there's a, a bill in the, um, in a, actually it's now on the governor's desk, um, House Bill 3162, which proposed modifications to this act. Um, it didn't abolish it altogether, but it changed the timelines. And we'll talk a, a little bit about that, but it has not been accepted. It passed the, the Senate and the House and is now um, on the governor's desk and expected to be passed and to go into effect in September. So when um, a family requests treatment that the team believes is futile, the case has to be reviewed by an ethics committee. And the family has to be given, it used to be 48 hours. If, if this house bill is, um, is passed, then it'll be seven days. They have to be given notice and invited to participate in the meeting. And if the ethics committee agrees with the medical team, um, then the family then has, used to be 10 days, and we talk, referred to it as the 10-day rule, but it will be 21 days um, to find a facility willing to accept transfer. And then if no transfer um, can be accomplished after 10 or 21 days, um, then, and there's no court order or extension, then treatment may be withdrawn and providers have legal immunity. So some of the, the benefits, the pros of a futility policy um, is that it offers an alternative procedure to resolving conflicts. The goal is to avoid the courts. Um, 
it also bypasses the dilemma of having to define futility. It, rather, it defines steps to follow um, if you believe it's the case. Um, it's useful in cases involving pain and suffering or when healthcare providers um, feel their integrity is being compromised by continuing treatment. Um, a huge benefit is that it does provide legal immunity. And it's theoretically, it's a community-based approach. So a physician or a hospital can't withdraw treatment that another facility agrees to provide. The um, downsides, though, is um, it's supposed to be a community-based approach, but the Ethics Committee essentially acts as a surrogate judge and jury. And an Ethics Committee is generally comprised mostly of, of insiders affiliated with the hospital. They all have some community members, but um, we see the, the results of, um, you know, cases that have gone to to this procedure, over 90% of the time, the ethics committee actually agrees with the medical team. Um, another you know, significant downside is that it erodes trust in the medical profession and it creates a hostile relationship with families. We, we spend a lot of time and do our best to, to foster a good relationship with our families and this automatically sets up um, an adversarial relationship. It results in bad publicity, which is certainly not the primary reason to avoid it, but it, it's significant. And then often these cases end up in the courts anyway, and they end up being long and drawn out. And I'll give an example of one of those that you all are probably familiar with, and that's um, the Tinsley Lewis case in um, Fort Worth at, <clears throat> excuse me, at Cook Children's. So Tinsley was born prematurely um, in February of 2019, she had Epstein's anomaly, um, severe RDS, pulmonary hypertension, and was on ECMO, I, I think, for about a month. She required deep sedation and paralysis and still had frequent death spells. We've all had patients who, who have had that issue. And the medical team was very concerned that Tinsley was suffering, and they recommended transitioning to comfort care. But the family wanted to continue to do everything possible. And I'll um, summarize this slide. Basically, um, so she was born in February, and then in September of that year, um, the hospital decided to start the process to withdraw treatment according to the Texas Advanced Directives Act. And the, the case went back and forth in the courts for almost three years. Um, a trial date was finally set for um, January of 2022, so almost three years later, and I think all the parties were so um, demoralized and tired of this that they actually postponed the, the trial date and, and worked together to try to reach a non-judicial resolution. Um, she ended up getting a trach and was ultimately discharged um, in April of 2022. And last I heard, she was still, she's still alive. Of course, the headlines read things like this. If, if it were up to the doctors, Tinsley Lewis would have been in her grave before age one. And we want the courts to see that Tinsley was saved. She's a success story. We need to protect more babies like her. And of course, in these cases, the hospital doesn't have any recourse because of privacy considerations. Um, so this case demonstrates that the Texas Advanced Directive Act is an option but it's really a last resort and it often doesn't work the way we, we want it to anyway. 
So I, I don't mean to be pessimistic and just paint a picture that these um, these cases are incredibly challenging and there aren't any really clear solutions to resolving them. I think there actually are things that, that we can do. And we're very fortunate in this institution um, to have a palliative care team that's so engaged and, and willing to be involved and provide continuity with these families and help facilitate discussions. So in the next section, I wanna talk about some of the things that we can do to prevent conflicts. And one of the most important things is that our is for our conver communication with families to be very consistent and very deliberate. Um, we want to avoid kind of off the cuff comments. Um, and, you know, it's very important to think about what we offer and when we offer it. Um, there's a, an effect called um, anchoring bias. Um, and that it's a cognitive bias that leads us to place disproportionate weight to the information, the first information that we hear about a topic. So if somebody kind of haphazardly mentions that a G-tube might be beneficial early in a child's course, um, the parents may be likely to latch on to that information. So you can come back days later and say, well, a G-tube is an option, but it's a surgical procedure. It carries risks. Risks doesn't always solve the problem. And they're more likely to ignore that information and latch on to what they, they first heard. So it's really important to think about um, what we offer and when we offer it. And then another really important um, thing to, to achieve is a team consensus. Um, it's our responsibility as professionals to advocate for what is medically indicated. So if a procedure is not medically indicated, we shouldn't offer it. And as a team, we should be in agreement of what we will be in agreement on what will be offered. And this is actually a work in progress here. Um, we're trying to create a, a committee, um, a multidisciplinary committee to evaluate cases that could potentially involve conflict with families. And this was the brainchild of Dr. Medellin and Dr. Willie Curran. And, and it is a work in progress, but you may hear more about that later on. So other ways to avoid conflict is um, to constantly assess the parent's goal of care. Um, it may be to go home, it may be to go to the garden. Um, it's important to know what, what their end point is. And when we explain the possible interventions, it's important to explain those in the context of how they can help families achieve those goals. Um, we should avoid asking questions like, do you want us to? If, if the heart stops, do you want us to do CPR? Because that puts the family in an incredibly difficult position. It sets us up for conflict because the family is in the position to have to say no. And often they're just not willing to do that because they feel like they're the ones who um, made the decision that resulted in a child's death. And so one alternative approach is um, referred to as informed non-dissent. Um, we don't put parents in that position to make that decision. We present them with the information, give them the opportunity to say no or to disagree. Um, and if they don't, then we proceed with the plan. And another factor is that we should we should focus on what we are doing, not on what we we won't do. So we will give pain medicine and make the, the patient comfortable. We will continue blood pressure medicines to to support the heart. Um, and sometimes we're able to 
get a do not escalate order. It might not be um, realistic that a family would decide to withdraw or treatment. Um, they may not be willing to sign a DNR, but sometimes we can get an agreement to not escalate therapy. And that, that's a step in the right direction. And then finally, um, it's important to be patient. Um, these cases often resolve over time. They can seem very long and drawn out and it can take a long time, but often they do. And we need to realize that families' acceptance comes in stages. They may not have initially believed the diagnosis or maybe they need to see that a child can't breathe on his or her own. Um, and once they reach those, see those milestones, then they might be more willing to, to pull back a little bit. Um, parents often need time and reassurance that they've, they've tried everything. Um, and just because a family refuses to limit interventions at one point in care doesn't mean that they'll always refuse. So it's important to, to continue to have these conversations and to always revisit the goals of care and to assess whether our treatments are actually working towards those goals. So we all know sometimes we can do everything right, follow all the steps, excellent communication, good rapport with families, and there's still conflict. Um, so in the next section, I want to kind of shift gears and talk about some of the things that we can do when conflict actually happens. And one thing that's important to realize in these cases is that they cause significant moral distress. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, taking care of these patients is incredibly difficult. And I think it's more difficult for bedside nurses and respiratory therapists who are actually um, in the room frequently and administering the treatments that they perceive may be causing suffering. Um, as physicians, we have the luxury of, of going into the room for a few minutes several times a day, but then stepping away. Um, so it's incredibly difficult for staff members. So moral distress, um, this, I'm not talking about just disagreements uh, or differences of opinions. Um, situations involving moral distress result when we believe that we know what's right, and but we can't act according to their to our um, beliefs. So, it's uh, it gets it involves conflict about what we truly believe to be right or wrong. And in these situations, um, staff members feel powerless because they're not able to act according to their values. And as a result, that can contribute to burnout. There's been a lot of studies in primarily in the nursing literature about that and for trainees as well. Um, it can result in compassion fatigue as well as mental health issues and the physical ailments that go along with that. So why are these cases so, so difficult? And one of the things that's frequently mentioned um, by staff members is concern that we're causing suffering. And we, we cause suffering all the time. Um, we, uh, we draw blood, we give medicines that make kids sick, but um, it's, you know, we accept that if there's a goal for a compensatory benefit, there's, we're working towards a goal that we think will benefit the child, then we, we accept some suffering. But in these cases, um, the problem is that a lot of the staff members see it as suffering with no potential for benefit. 
And it's important to to go back to the when we talked about defining futility in the first place, and and realize that that benefit is is subjective. And so um, this is another case where it's important to you know go back to the and revisit the family's goals because the way we define benefit may be different. Um, these cases are hard because often they do go, they're prolonged, they go on and on, and the team can't see that there's actually an end in sight. Um, and then there's a concept called um, moral residue. And the idea is that when we get moral distress, we, we never really return back to our baseline. So we carry that distress with us when we encounter more cases, the next case. And so um, over time, as we, we deal with these issues more and more, um, we became become less resilient and less tolerant um, the next time we see it. And so this is a significant problem given that these cases are um, happening more and more frequently. So what are some of the steps that that we can do to um, that we can help to, to take care of the staff to um, alleviate moral distress and take care of ourselves? Um, I think communication is is really key and we're pretty good at talking amongst ourselves, but we're not as good about communicating with other providers. And often in these cases, they have gone on a long time. We get tired of talking about it. And so the, the goals tend to be lost. And this is a situation where our um, family-centered rounds may actually be a hindrance because times that as a healthcare team, we, we need to talk and hash things out without the family being present. And so when we do family-focused rounds, um, we, we have to be cautious about what we say, gear it towards the family, obviously, but it's really important to um, retrace our steps later on and be sure that we communicate our plans with the, um, the bedside nurse, with the RTs. And it's important to communicate both our short and long-term plans. And we need to make sure that all of the staff members are aware of what the family's are. Um, staff debriefing sessions can be very helpful, and we've done several here, and and they've they've been a good way for staff members to kind of voice concerns. And some things that we we didn't realize were concerns um, were raised in these meetings. And an example is um, in one case, the bedside nurses. This was a child who was coding frequently. And the bedside nurses didn't realize that the attending physicians had the authority to stop a code, that they thought that the, the code would go on until the family gave us permission to stop. So in this meeting, we were able to clarify that and um, you know, make it clear that, that these will not be prolonged codes and that we have the authority to, to stop when it's no longer, um, when it looks like it's not going to work out. And so that actually was a big relief for the staff. So sometimes there are misunderstandings and uh, miscommunication that can be clarified in these meetings. Um, it's also an opportunity to address concerns about suffering because that's one that is, is often mentioned by staff members and we certainly don't want to cause suffering for no good reason. And so it's important to talk about plans. Um, we can use liberal um, doses of narcotics and analgesics to do everything we can to make a patient comfortable. And then it's also important to um, kind of define what we're, we're considering to be suffering. Um, suffering itself is actually a um, subjective term. Um, and for kids who have severe 
neurologic deficits, what we may interpret as suffering, like a grimace, a cough, um, may not actually be suffering the way that we understand it. It may be a response to stimulus. It might be autonomic storming. And so sometimes talking about those things can, um, can help the staff move forward. Um, mentioned this, but we discuss, it's important to discuss actions that will, will be taken in the event of a code, even if a family um, has not agreed to a, a do not resuscitate order. Um, it's helpful to get ethics involved early. For one thing, team likes to get involved before the crap hits the fan, <laughs> before everything um, deteriorates. So it's helpful to have them involved early. And it doesn't have to be a formal consult. Um, the ethics team can be very helpful in kind of teasing out um, the factors that are underlying distress. And, and they can also help facilitate conversations with staff members and schedule debriefing sessions. Um, getting the ethics team involved also communicates to the staff that we're concerned as well, that we recognize that the situation is difficult and that the questions are, are complex. So um, it gets us kind of on the same page. And then finally, giving staff members um, who are really experiencing distress an option of opting out of taking care of a, a patient can be very helpful. Um, now, it's difficult to do this sometimes given our shortage of nursing. I wish we had an abundance of nurses, but we don't. Um, so at a minimum, it's helpful to to rotate providers so that the same, same nurses aren't um, taking care of a challenging patient, you know, every night or every day they're on. Um, now, there's some staff members who seem to um, thrive in this situation. They actually like um, taking care of these families. And so in those cases, they can be assigned and that's that's not a problem. So in summary, um, several points. So it's important to be very cautious about the way we use um, futility when we're talking, the term futility when we're talking about conflicts um, with parents about treatment options. Um, we've talked about the difficulties in defining it and um, the subjective nature of a lot of the terms that we use when we talk about futility, like quality of life, suffering, those kinds of things. So rather than using the term futile as a label, um, rubber stamp to apply to a situation, it's more important to try to tease out um, what the concerns are. And sometimes we can reach an agreement just by doing that. Um, it's important to realize that good parents and good healthcare providers can disagree on what's best for a child. Um, the uh, conflict stems from a difference in values and um, we all have the same goal of, of helping a child, but we just disagree about what that looks like and what that means. It's important to approach disagreements with humility. Um, a lot of these cases involve uncertainty. And even though we have amazing technology in medicine and we've, we're becoming better and better at research, there's still a lot of uncertainty in medicine. And as I mentioned before, we, um, we're not all that great at prognostication. Um, and families can pick up on that. And, and the last thing you want to do is, is give them a number and then be wrong. Um, well, in some cases, that's okay. It's always nice to see patients defy odds. But um, my dad actually taught medical ethics at Baylor for years. And I think their faculty members who were in some of his classes, Dr. Mays was one of his students. And he used to always say that in fact science, medicine ranks up there with theology and economics. 
And I didn't really understand that statement until I, I actually um, uh, entered the healthcare field. But um, that's why we refer to medicine as an art. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of what we do is learning how to deal with that uncertainty. And it certainly comes to play in, in these cases involving conflicts with families. And it's important to remember that healthcare providers are not at the mercy of parents uh, or families. Um, we are moral agents and um, we're not there just to carry out their wishes. So um, there are a lot of things that we can control. And so we should we should use communication and use those things in order to, to try to avoid conflict. Um, it's always important to be patient. Um, these cases often do resolve themselves. Um, we may have families who just seem like they will never get there, but um, in many cases they actually they actually do. And so it's important to be patient and recognize where they're coming from. And then finally, realize that moral distress is a significant problem and it's important to stay, take steps to alleviate it in the, the team members. So I think that is it. These are my references. And I'd like to thank everybody for, for dialing in. And at this point, I welcome questions or comments. And if anybody has any brilliant ideas, I welcome those too. Thank you, Dr. Jones, for that fascinating presentation. Dr. Kisun has a question in the chat box. Can yes. you discuss the effect cost to the society and it, if it should be considered in these instances? So the cost of treatment and everything else, yeah. Sure, sure. So we always think about our um, obligation to, um, in, as physicians, is to our patient and, and less to society. And their cost of feudal treatment has actually been one of the um, uh, reasons that people cite that we should not carry out feudal treatment or feudal or treatment that's considered to be feudal. And there've actually been a lot of studies, both in pediatrics and in adult medicine. Um, one fairly recent adult study um, suggested that feudal treatment does actually carry a significant cost, but there were, there were problems with the study. So they concluded that in about 20% of the time, um, physicians in adult intensive care units feel that they're providing um, feudal care. And so based on that, they, they crunched the numbers and came up with a, um, a value of about $2.6 million over a three-month period. So that's a significant chunk of change. Um, it's just a drop in the bucket of the cost of critical care. Um, other studies have shown that the, the primary costs in critical care are actually fixed costs. Um, so um, refusing to, to give feudal care actually would have a very low impact. Um, the only way to decrease those costs is to, to close off ICU beds um, or close down ICUs. In pediatrics, um, the effect is even, even less. So there have been several studies both in, in the NICU, the PICU, and in pediatric cardiac ICUs that, that show that um, care that's considered feudal um, takes up a very small percentage of actually bed days, um, estimated anywhere from about one to 5%. And all of these studies, it's it's tricky because we, we talked about how difficult it is to define futility. So in order to study it, it has to be consensus about a definition. So there are a lot of criticisms about these studies, but um, ultimately um, 
offering fetal care is just is a small percentage of, of the cost of what we we do um, in medicine. And then in our healthcare system, um, we really can't appeal to the argument that if we save money in one area that can be applied to something we consider more valuable. So if we stop doing what we consider to be futile care, then those, you know, those funds could go towards vaccines or, um, or other efforts that we consider more valuable. But in our system, like that could be a compelling argument in a one payer system. Um, but in our system, it's not a really finite pool of resources. So that argument doesn't really play out. Does that answer the question? There's another right, question, question from Dr. Seidner. Since the outcomes mm -hmm. of critically ill children are so unpredictable, how would you approach a pandemic where there wasn't the ability to treat everyone? <laughs> um, well, that's that's a difficult question. And um, we uh, fortunately in pediatrics, we really didn't didn't face that crisis. We had a plan in place to to deal with it. Um, but in that case, we, we do have to set priorities. Um, often what happens is when we're tight on on PICU beds or NICU, NICU beds, um, we we're not refusing patients, but rather we're scooting patients out and um, uh, to the floor. So higher acuity patients are going to the floor. So um, fortunately, we, we haven't experienced a bed crunch where we really did have to ration care, ration ventilators, ration beds. Um, but if we face that situation, then then yes, we do we do have to come up with a, a priority system. Um, and one of the, the solutions um, when during the COVID pandemic, um, if we had encountered a shortage of ventilators, then one of the potential options would be for kids who are on chronic home vents. Um, we keep them on their home vents even when, you know, when they're critically ill and try to just manage and make it through that way. But they're tricky questions and, and not great solutions. It's a great question, and I hope we don't have to face that. Any other questions, comments for Dr. Jones? Dr. Williams has a question. What is offered or best on an ongoing basis to support family members who may experience doubt, guilt, being overwhelmed, et cetera, providing long-term care of the chronic child issues? So I think this is a, a case um, situation where our palliative care team is amazing. Um, and I, you know, as a critical care physician, I really don't don't see all of those efforts on an outpatient basis. But um, their support groups, um, the palliative care team is great, and the complex care team is is great about establishing resources and um, providing continuity for the family. Um, when they're inpatient, um, the things that we can do is is um, work on our communication skills, um, listen to their concerns, um, be open to hearing about their goals. Um, so there are a lot of things that we we can do. Dr. Jones, this is Michelle Arandes here. Real quick question. Thank you Hi. for an important topic. And as a program director and just as a physician and a human, I think it's, you know, we talk a lot about the goals of the family and I think that's really key. But I also think when we talk about taking care of the moral injury and, and, and our staff, and in particular, our learners who are in a unique situation. They're rotating through a, a clinical setting where they may not 
have any desire to be or have any affinity for <laughs> that acuity of care. Um, and, and yet obviously there's value, but, but they, the moral injury to them is also compounded by the fact that they're often executing plans that are not necessarily their own, right? They're mm -hmm. sort of in that middle ground, much like our nurses and RTs, they're going in and having to deliver care that, that maybe isn't a decision they made independently or that they, they may not a hundred percent understand or agree with. I, 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 guess I don't have a real question other than to say I, I appreciate this type of conversation because I think it reminds us that we need to be thinking about how we debrief and support all those staff members. And number one, I want to appreciate our PICU because they do a great job of recognizing often when our learners are suffering from those those types of challenges and giving them space and giving them support, but also just, you know, thinking about how we particularly in academics can um, ensure that that our models take care of, of those vulnerable people as well, because um, I think we can underestimate how impactful those experiences can be. I've seen people who really thought that's what they wanted to do for a living and just not really be able to handle that that tension or that sort of lack of uh, of, uh, of autonomy or I, I don't, you know, any number of things, but it, it's just something to be thoughtful of as you assess what's going on in those situations, particularly, you know, we rotate on and off as attendings. Often they're, they're the ones there through all the different permutations. Um, mm -hmm. so just a reminder to all of us to be mindful of that unique challenge. Sure, sure. And that's a that's a great point. Um, I, I can't imagine that they don't want to rotate through the PICU, but I guess that's the case. Um, I think uh, there there are good studies in of trainees um, and about moral distress similar to the studies that have been done in, in nursing literature. So I think it is very important to be cognizant of, of their distress. And but on the flip side, it is it's also important for them to see that and to experience that because it is such a big Absolutely. part of, of um, what we do in critical care and palliative care. But I think um, your comment is helpful. I think we we should um, do a better job of including trainees in, in the debriefing sessions, um, maybe even having sessions just for them. We could have residents um, compile cases and and talk about it. The um, Unit-based Schwartz rounds and our staffing debriefing sessions have been have been very helpful. So doing that something like that specifically for the residents would be a good idea. Um, we do it for the critical care fellows, but um, the other trainees that would be helpful. Thank you. Yes, and thank you. I agree. It is an important experience, and and most go in not excited, but come out having appreciated what they learned. So. <laughs> okay, good, good. That's what we hope. Other questions, mm -hmm. comments for Dr. So, Jones? Uh, this is Pat. Before us, I don't know if you can hear me because I'm driving. But um, <laughs> Michelle, I was going to say that piggybacking on what you're saying, if we had our residents, even for just two weeks, circulate through or rotate through our CCC where they could see our very complex kids healthy and with their families and doing well, as opposed to what they see in the PICU and on the floor, um, that often makes a really big difference for them. It's something we ought to start exploring, maybe. I think that's a great idea that might be helpful for the critical care physicians as well. One of the most rewarding things that we experience is when patients come back just for social visits and um, and even when they have disabilities, it's it's nice to see how they families and they're cherished by their their parents once they get out of here. 
I have said that for a long time. There's a question, Dr. Sirland. Can you ask your question? Yeah, this is Jeannie, um, Jeannie Sirland. I'm actually the director of ethics services for UH. Um, one, I love this is fabulous. This is fabulous and something near and dear to my heart. One of the things, too, as far as resources for nurses and trainees, again, to see the other side, there's um, community organizations like one that is very important. It's Camp uh, Children's Association for Maximum Potential. They have a camp camp where they have some of our volunteers that are medical staff that work with these individuals, and you get to see them outside of a hospital environment as children, as people, as you know, joyful individuals. And, you know, it's just uh, an entirely different way of looking at them and appreciating where the family's coming from. And also, just to let you know, one of the things that our department is working on is setting up moral distress reflective debriefings, uh, rolling those out where the experience of moral distress can be explored a little bit deeply um, by staff members to help them understand it to kind of separate the cognitive experience from the emotional experience so that they're better able to build that resilience and understanding of the different perspectives. Um, again, one of my mentors says, just because something's right for you or wrong for you doesn't mean that it's wrong for that other person. And sometimes I think, as you said, we get into our echo chambers and it's really easy to all think the same. This is wrong what we're doing, but maybe, maybe not. You know, what's the other side? So more to come on that. All right, thank you. Yeah, the ethics team is a, is a great resource. Thanks for listening to that fascinating talk. Don't forget to click on the link in this podcast for free ethics credit. Next week, we'll explore the new obesity guidelines by the AAP, and I'll talk to a wellness expert. See you next week. Thanks so much for listening to Pediatrics Now. I'm Holly Wayment.